Like, if any of these were easy problems to solve, we would have already solved them. You know, the more people that we can have weighing in with different perspectives, the more opportunities we have to hear really good ideas. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and we're here with Elias Axel Pedersen and with good friend of his and a new friend of the show, Richard Coburn. Um, Richard is a freelance pianist, vocal uh, coach, organist, arranger, and composer. He is a founding member of the vocal chamber ensemble Quintus Four. He also trains freelancers to improve their negotiation and communication. Um, and he is currently working on um, a project called More by Pick. BIPOC, excuse me, morebipocvoices.com. And we're going to talk about that. Did I, did I do that right, Rich? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, I, I just, I want to welcome you to the show. There's a, the, the, you've got quite a history we're going to get into and, and talk about your story. But I just, you know, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for being on And If Love Remains. You know, it's really my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I, I want to start a, a little bit with kind of your background. You have quite an, an interesting background. You're, um, you studied piano. You, um, um, you've done a lot of work with, with operas. You've done a lot of work. I mean, you're, you're like, your, your resume is, is, you know, very, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it's quite diverse <laughs> and I think all over the place. <laughs> well, in most cases, as most musicians are, <laughs> but it, it's interesting. So talk to me about, about your background and, and your story. Um, how did you, you know, you know, tell me about, you know, pre uh, college and, and then how you, how you decided to, to, I think you studied piano. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I like, until I was, let's see, maybe 22, piano was my instrument and I did solo piano and that was it. And it was really quite simple. So, you know, I grew up in a musical household. My, I have a twin brother who is also a musician. So we both were playing piano at this time. And when I was young, my dad played, uh, he played pretty well. And so like there was always music in my house. We grew up uh, listening to music and that was great. And I, you know, I went to school, I went to the University of Calgary, I did my undergrad there, had a wonderful time. Uh, and then after that, I was working for a little bit. So this was like around 2005, I guess. Uh, I was in Calgary. And, you know, Calgary is is a really oil um, heavy economy. And so at that mm -hmm. time, the oil prices were sky high, and it was just so easy to find work right when I graduated my undergrad, which was really cool for me. Right. Uh, so I, I like I just sort of stepped out of, out of school and people called me who I didn't even know when I was working full time in no time. And I just thought that's how the world worked. Um, and right, wow. yeah, right. <laughs> and <laughs> right. And so I was doing that and like I was doing these jobs and they were fine, but I started to get a little bit bored, like I needed a new project. So I had this job at a church and I was playing the piano there, but there was an organ. So I decided I was going to learn to play the organ. Okay. So I started sort of just messing around on it and teaching myself. And then I had a, um, I got a teacher at some point and, and did a little bit more of that. Um, and actually the teacher, weirdly enough, his name was the same as my father's, which was Neil Coburn. No and, I, way. and there was this, there was this one time that I meant to send him an email about a textbook for organ and I sent it to my dad by accident. And like, my dad is also an academic. So my dad sent me back this like, you know, very sort of overly academic, <laughs> just like very uptight response. And I never, like, I just sort of assumed that there was a thing. And I, I just sort of like let it fall and then brought it up months later with my teacher. And he was like, I don't think I ever saw that email. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> wow. That's cute. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean... So go ahead. Oh no, 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 I was just gonna say that. I mean, the, the, it, it sounds it sounds like your your dad knew how to play along well with that. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad is like is a little bit shy, but has a really funny sense of humor. Like you know, he's not that outgoing, but he's he's pretty funny. Um, 
you know, so from there, I I did that in Calgary for a while, and then I decided that I wanted to leave Calgary, and I decided to move to Montreal. So I applied uh, to do a master's at McGill. Let me let me back piano. up. Let me back up just a little yeah. bit, because um, I mean, I'm I'm interested in this sort of thing. Um, <laughs> you know, the the different just just like the difference between playing the piano and playing the organ. I know a lot of people think that's yeah. essentially the same instrument <laughs> and it is essentially not the same <laughs> instrument. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm curious, like, like how, um, how was that transition? Like how, what did, maybe even what are some things that you learned? Um, how did it affect your, your piano technique? I mean, it messed up my piano technique in all kinds of ways. Like, you know, my master's was basically spent trying to get me to relearn how to play the piano. Because <laughs> um, there were like, uh, you know, there were a few years there where I considered myself more in art. I played the organ more than the piano. Uh-huh. Like I played piano for rehearsal, but in terms of actually playing in front of people, you know, I was playing at this fantastic church in Calgary doing really great music and you know, doing great postludes. And so I was just playing a ton of organ repertoire and I played, I almost never played the piano in public, um, you know, besides for rehearsal or for accompanying singers or something like that. Um, I think the biggest thing I learned from playing organ was about taking more responsibility for my musicality. Hmm. And so like, what I mean by that is when you play the piano, like we all know if you're playing Beethoven or Liszt or like something, your instrument's different than theirs, but we all kind of agree to forget that. And then we just go out there and, and do our thing. You know, I mean, and we think about it a little bit, but we basically assume that we're playing pretty similar instruments. Um, but, you know, that means that you don't have that much say in what you do. You just have to sort of do what's on the page. Right. Um, if you're playing the organ, you have to choose which stops you're using. So the composer is going to write something. Um, you know, they're going to give you an indication of what they want, but they're going to write what exists on their organ. Right. So if I'm playing on a uh, three manual sort of kind of brokish type organ that's got like maybe 40 stops or 30 stops, say, and they've written for like a French organ that was built in the 1880s and they have like 100 stops you know, there's so little crossover between what we have because they're fundamentally, it's like, right. you know, talking about a, you know, a, a Volkswagen bug and a Ferrari. It's like, yeah, they both have wheels, but, you know, Absolutely. You th- so you have to start taking this responsibility for like, okay, what am I going to do? Like, what am I actually going to use to make this sound? Or occasionally, this is just something I can't even come close to doing. So what am I going to do instead? Oh, um, it, it's interesting because the organ is, is such an old instrument. And so in a way, the organ hasn't changed much since the time of Bach or Buxtehude or whatever. But uh, but there are so many different types of organs out there and there were back then as well. So I don't know if, if you think that makes it harder or, or easier or, I don't know, better or worse. Well, yeah. Compared to the piano is, has changed immensely in 200 years. Yeah, I mean, like the... The thing is that organs can last a long time. So like the the instrument has actually changed a lot, but there are still really old instruments that have just been restored. And now people build new ones like the old ones were also. So like you've got this wide range. I don't know if it's better or worse, but it's definitely a lot of fun because now like you don't get to sit on the sidelines and just play music. You know, you have to be almost like you're involved I want to say almost at the compositional level in the music making, you know, in the sense that you have to think about what's the structure and is what I'm doing really respecting the structure and bringing it through the composer the way the composer wanted. And like all, what are all the different ways that I'm going to cheat, um, you know, to, to make an effect and, and you just get to rewrite things sometimes because it's what makes the most sense. That is, And nobody gets upset at you for, you know, in playing piano, you get up, yelled at for throwing in a bass octave once in a while but like <laughs> right, right. that is really interesting you know and, and, and it's funny because that's been kind of a theme over the last few episodes that that Elias and I have, have had together as far as like you know the role of the composer versus the role, role of the interpreter slash performer versus the role of the audience like like how hmm. how over time all of these roles if you will that we play 
you know, change and morph and, 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 um, it, it, it's funny. I was, I, I've, I've talked to Lisa about, about, you know, the piano, you know, the, 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 the hard thing about playing the piano, well, the nice thing about playing the piano is that you, you don't carry your instrument with you. The bad part is that you're always playing on a different instrument and, you know, multiply right. that times a hundred with an organ. Cause every organ is vastly different <laughs> and, and yeah. in, a, in a way like the space itself is the instrument. And so like, you cannot mm-hmm. compare one organ to another. No, absolutely. You know, and I like, um, you know, if you're like playing a concert, sometimes you're going to show up and you feel really comfortable with the repertoire and you just sort of like touch the piano a couple of times and you're like, yeah, we'll figure it out as we go. Like, this seems fine. And like, there'll be some things that are different or weird or whatever, but like, it's a thing that you can do. Right. Right. Like, I mean, wasn't it Richter who used to not like to touch the piano before he performed? Oh, really? And then he would just do it what he could yeah i mean like i mean maybe i'm maybe i'm remembering this slightly wrong but i i i I thought it was him who like was just kind of like well we'll see what what it is when we're out there and like we'll just play together and have some fun together (laughs) um well i definitely remember uh, some story about rubenstein going to uh, maybe steinway gallery and they had all these pianos like well which one do you want i think in five minutes well that one's fine but then he took an hour to choose the right bench to sit on because he's like, piano doesn't, I, I need to be comfortable so I can do what I need to do. That's, yeah. That's classic. That's good. Yeah. Uh huh. So, oh, so you're playing the organ and you decided to go back to your master's for piano. Well, yeah, basically I wanted to, to leave Calgary. Um, and you know, I'd been there for eight years and I decided that I, a lot of people told me that Montreal was a fun city. I'd never been to Montreal, but I knew one person in Montreal. So I decided I was going to go visit him. I didn't know him that well, but I decided I was going to go visit him. And I did. And I came for a week in the summer and I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I'll move there. So I applied to McGill. Uh, and I, I really applied to McGill only so I would have a reason to come and so I would have a way of meeting people when I got here. Like, I don't say only like, I, it's not like I wasn't excited about, about, you know, going and doing a master's, but it was like. I was like, well, I'm not just going to move there and not know anybody. So I was like, oh, maybe I go to school. Yeah, that sounds like a fun idea. Um, <laughs> so you know, it worked up. It worked out pretty well. You know, now I've I've met my partner here and I live here and I have no plans to go anywhere else. And you know, so many great things have happened to me here. So it it worked out pretty well. <laughs> See, sometimes sometimes That's great awesome. plans happen the way they're supposed to. Even yeah, yeah. <laughs> even That's when you so plan cool. it that way, it's a miracle. Wait, so. When when did you move to Montreal? Because I'm t- I know we overlapped fair well yeah not my first couple of years but soon after I moved in 2010 like in August of 2010. Okay, I, I moved uh, 2007. Yeah. So then yeah, and you started your masters there in 2010, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I remember. But then like pretty quickly into my masters, like I had been playing for some singers in Calgary, and uh, you know there's this wonderful teacher at McGill who later became my teacher named Michael McMahon. Um, I mean, actually, there's a lot of wonderful teachers at McGill, but this one in particular. He's quite well known. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and he he has this class where you basically just go and do art song with singers. And, you know, it's basically like little master classes each time. But, you know, he really gets the class involved and, you know, it's, it's a fantastic class. And it really got me involved in sort of playing and collaborating with singers in such a big way that by the end of my first year master's, I decided I wanted to work with singers instead. Um, so I sort of finished the master's. I tried to see if I could do two degrees at once, but it was going to be too much of an administrative nightmare. So I just finished the master's, did a bunch of song in the master's anyway. And then I went and did um, a an artist diploma, diploma in collaborative piano. So that's like, there is where I really started focusing with singers. Okay. Um, and I had a lot of fun doing that. And it's like, I mean... What I've found is that, you know, between being doing solo piano and then playing organ and then playing with singers and like, you know, more recently, my neighbor upstairs runs a ballet studio. So I started playing in her ballet studio and like doing all these different types of music has really given me a lot of insight. Like, I feel like it's made me a lot better rounded of a musician. Mm. Um, you know, I feel like there are things that only happen in opera that, or I should say in vocal music that don't happen in other areas of music that well, or that much, like, you know, the way that you stretch around the, you know, the vocal line. Right. And there are things that only happen 
in church music. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say only again, but, you know, way more like improvisation, for example, or, you know, other things and or even just the way that you have to make the music secondary to what's happening at the altar often, you know, that, yeah, it's great music, but you're really just making background music until, you know, the priest takes 10 more steps and gets up to, you know, wherever they have to go or whatever. Um, And, you know, and then in ballet, you've got this thing about like the feel of the, like the bounce and the, like the gesture, which you don't, you know, if you, you can play solo music forever and not think about that and still be a pretty reasonable musician. So, you know, doing all of these things that has been so interesting to me to see the ways they complement each other and, and uh, you know, what you pick up from, from each different uh, area, I guess. And, and all those and all those skills are, you know, really vital to to their setting. I mean, I think about church music and and, you know, and I played quite a bit of church music and, and you're right. It's interesting, like making that making that music both meaningful and secondary is quite an art <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly you you put it better than i did yeah <laughs> you know because yeah it's it's very interesting what um and then and and speaking of collaboration i i find it interesting you you started working with artists and and people on the um what, what you call collaborative communication what explain that a little bit and, and what that's about yeah, so that's um, a little bit different. I had, when I finished my my artist diploma, so I basically was finished school, and I had decided pretty certainly I'm not going back. Um, and I was working again, and it was going well, but I decided that I wanted to be broadening what I was doing. I like I really enjoyed working with singers, but I didn't want to be only working with singers, mm-hmm. and I. I don't know, someone, I think it was my girlfriend suggested to me first that like, maybe you should like look into being a mediator. And I was like, what is a mediator? Like, what is, why would I do that? And she said, yeah, you tend to be like reasonably even headed. And, you know, and so I looked and she said, there's a girl in my kickboxing class at the gym who's a mediator. Do you want to like meet her and talk about it? So she like sort of flagged down this girl (laughs) in her kickboxing class and coerced her into meeting me. And now we're really good friends and like we hang out with her and her husband and we hang out like, you know, we went cross country skiing almost every weekend this winter. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, But it started with me just saying, hey, like what's mediation? Can you talk to me a bit about what you do? And so I decided, yeah, that's kind of interesting. It's like a way of helping people to work better together. You know, it's base. It's, you know, if you wanted to sue someone, like if you wanted to take legal action against someone, instead of going to court, you could go to mediation also. And the main difference is that there's no one who's going to solve the problem for you. You have, it's a structure in which you both hear the other person's side and you come to an agreement together. So that means that like people tend to be happier with the outcome, tends to happen a lot faster. You're going to save yourself a lot of money in legal fees. Um, Well, and and at the same time, it's, like I, as a musician, maybe I, I shouldn't say as a musician because everybody's different. And so not to put that, that term on it, but for myself, I'll say it that way. Like I struggle with things like trying to figure out proper price points for my skills, trying to mm-hmm. figure out, you know, you know, what, um, how we can find a win-win situation where I don't, you know, where, where neither party feels um, resentful towards the other, <laughs> you know, that th- those things yeah. are, are vital in, in having any kind of economic, you know, um, relationship. And, 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 and sometimes when it's not cut and dry, you know, of, of what your skills are worth to the person versus what your skills are worth to you, like that, that, that tension is important and it's a difficult one to, to figure out. I mean, so you just hit that. You just made my segue for me. Um, you know, basically I to this course and I started reading some books about it and it was really interesting. And I realized that there were some areas of my life. I mean, it wasn't only around my business, but it was also around my business where I was getting better results than I had before, because I tend to be like, you know, I'm an extroverted introvert, but I'm an introvert at the base. And, you know, I don't like conflict and, you know, like a lot of people. Right. Right. Um, And I had just been like saying yes to things and or being like, or like asking to negotiate and people would say no. And I'd say, okay, 
right. um, <laughs> and you know, I'd be like, they'd say there's no more money. And I'd be like, okay. So, you know, there was this time that it really hit home for me. I, I got a contract before I started doing this uh, mediation and negotiation stuff. And I was really excited about the contract. It was like, um, it was a great contract, but it didn't pay you know, what I wanted or what I thought was really reasonable, which is like a story that every musician has. Right. Right. Um, but anyway, I took the contract. I asked if we could talk about the price and I said, there's no more money. I said, fine, I'll take the contract. Um, a couple of years later, I had been doing this mediation stuff and I've been thinking more about negotiation. And over the course of two years, I managed to get them to double what they were paying me. And it only took me five emails to do that. Oh, wow. And I was like, that was like, you know, my hourly rate on writing those emails was insane, you know, and considering that, like, how that was just for one year, but like, you know, I've got that same rate now every year after. So like my hourly rate on those emails just keeps getting better. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing is, like, it's not, it's not really that hard. You just have to understand what you're trying to do. It's like, I mean, you both are musicians. So if you're trying to if you're trying to play a tricky passage on the piano and you're jumping around a lot and you keep missing a bass octave, you need to understand why you're missing the octave. Is it because you're looking in the wrong place or is it because you're just not paying attention to something or is it because there's tension in your back or is it because like, right, you, you can go through and diagnose why am I missing this octave? Right. And like once you understand why you're missing the octave, you have a way better chance of hitting the octave or of designing a, an exercise or a process or whatever so you can learn to hit the octave. And it's the same thing with negotiation. Most people, in my experience, don't understand what's happening inside the body, like psychologically, but also physiologically, when we negotiate or when we're trying to reduce conflict or just deal with somebody who's annoying or who's controlling or manipulative. And like, you know, even before COVID happened, there was so much pressure on young singers and young musicians. Um, I mean, I see it the most in singers and, you know, who get asked to do these contracts and it's so competitive that they just take them, but they're just, you know, they have terrible working conditions right. often. And I really wanted to help those people to advocate for themselves. So, you know, I just basically designed a small course around this where I go and talk to people and I explain to them, uh, you know, what I'm doing or sorry, what, what they're doing, like what's happening when you feel threatened, when you feel that you might lose something, uh, you know, you, you can, if you just think about like going into a negotiation, you can probably feel like a tightening somewhere in your chest or stomach or something. Right. right? Absolutely. And like what you're feeling is a, you're actually feeling a physiological change in your body. So like you understand what that is, then you understand how to, how to start to to combat that and what you can do and and ways to give yourself much better chances of getting what you want. Mm -hmm. It's like self-help. We actually had uh, somebody on Ingla Onstead. I don't know if uh, if you're if you're aware of her but talking about just stage fright which is only a small portion kind of of this overall physiological change that you have when you're when you're under any sort of pressure mm -hmm. kind of fight or flight or freeze mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um but yeah, just being aware. And I think the hardest thing that you mentioned, you said, well, if you can just, if you know that you're making that mistake and what, what is happening to your body as a result or what are you doing, um, just being able to diagnose that is tough. And that's sort of an art. Mm -hmm. uh, and it takes a lot of awareness. It takes a lot of um, non-ego, I guess, to say, okay, well, this is, this is not a judgment. I think that's partially why it's tough for singers in general in the music world is they're judged so much by, okay, this is who you are, not this is what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's hard to kind of negotiate for that because you're, you're even under more pressure, like somebody else is going to get this. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a tough world out there. Yeah, well, and, and it's also like, you know, the, the catch here is that your brain is undergoing changes and you're trying to use your brain to diagnose the changes that your brain is undergoing. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. Right. So it's like circular <laughs> logic. You, you yeah. can't, you, you know, when you start to try to do this, you're not going to be very successful and you're going to go, you're going to get far down the road and be like, Oh damn. Now I see this thing that I was supposed to try to stop myself from doing like, but I've been doing it for 10 minutes. <laughs> right. um, 
But then you like notice when you've been doing it for five minutes, and then you notice when you've been doing it for 30 seconds, and then you're like, oh, I bet you I'm about to do this thing. Um, you know, and slowly you you give yourself more and more opportunities to get out of sort of like narrow-minded defensive um positioning and posture and into open-minded uh creative posture where you can see better options and you have way more option opportunity to to build leverage with the other person also. Yeah. That's why that's great. I think that that's, that's some really good ideas. And and um, is, is that something that you're still doing? If, if somebody wants to get help with that, is that something that, that you can help them absolutely. with? Absolutely. How would yeah, how they contact you to do that? Uh, yeah, just at my email at uh, richard.a.coburn, C-O-B-U-R-N, at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, I, it's something that I've done with uh, young musicians across Canada and the States. Um, I've worked with individuals. Um, I've worked with other people who aren't musicians, um, you know, who who have negotiation as part of their jobs in specific ways. And it's it's absolutely something I do. And, you know, it ties actually really well into the BIPOC voices project that I'm doing. I think the thing that I'm that I'm so passionate about and it's not a passion that I discovered until I was about to say later in my life as though I'm old, (laughs) but more recently in my life. um, uh, That's great. Yeah, <laughs> I gotta remember that one. More recently in my life. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is just like fundamentally helping people to be better together. Um, you know, helping people to disagree better, helping people to problem solve better together. You know, and I really feel like it. I feel like when you say it like that, it doesn't sound that important, but if you think about it, like. Everything we do, which is important to us, involves teamwork. You know, you can't have an, a smartphone without a lot of teamwork, a vastly complicated supply chain, uh, you know, tons of factories and shipping and all this sort of stuff. You know, you look at all the problems that are happening in politics, you know, in Canada, their states or anywhere else. There's, you know, the the dysfunction of the company of the country is roughly proportional to the inability of people to work together um and you know or you look at um you know young musicians who are struggling who are you know and and who are not finding ways to work with the people who want to hire them and so you know the way that that ties into the BIPOC voices thing is that I think that that you know we're obviously in this moment right now around um anti-racism around trying to understand in more detail what that is and how it manifests in different ways. And it's really easy for people to get defensive in just the same way that like, if you're negotiating, you would, and it's not because people are inherently, I mean, I'm talking about everybody, like not people of any race or people who look like anything, just everybody. It's easy for them to get defensive, like either because it's almost our natural state, you know, like that's how we survived for millions of years (laughs) by being defensive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and yeah, I mean, so like, you know, someone comes at you with an idea that you're not used to or an idea that you feel threatens you. And it's really difficult to have an open conversation around it. And you like, you know, I see a lot of people. So like people who are listening to this can't see this, but I'm half black. So my mom is uh, from Guyana in South America and my dad's uh, family is English. Um, So, you know, people, you know, and I only say that because like when you see me, then you make assumptions about where I stand on the, you know, on issues around anti-racism. But uh you know, there's like, I see a lot of people who have lived a lot of stuff, like a lot of bad stuff. And I'm pretty privileged to have lived in Canada where I haven't had to deal with very much overt racism at all. Um, you know, I actually like to joke to my friends that I've suffered more prejudice as an Anglophone living in Quebec, which is French speaking mm-hmm. province than I have as a black person living in Canada. <laughs> um, and wow. I can see that, um, you know, and, and, and having said that, I, I have not suffered a ton of, I have not suffered very much prejudice at all as an Anglophone in Quebec. I don't, Well, you also speak French extremely well. So. Well, I do now. I didn't when I moved here, but, um, sure. Uh, but that is interesting. Like it, 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 you know, how do we perceive, you know, ourselves as other in a way, you know, like, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> what, what, yeah. What, what, not, not, not just what are, what are, how are people looking at us, but how are we perceiving ourselves? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about my whole journey of self-discovery of my own identity and how that changed when I lived in Virginia for a couple of months. And like, you know, I was down in Virginia, like just after the Charlottesville protest, like two, three months after that happened, I was there for a couple of months. And that was like an eye-opening experience for me just because I got to learn a lot about myself and assumptions I'd made about myself and like how I see myself. Um, yeah, because others don't see you perhaps the same way you see yourself. Not at all. So that starts to right. change who, how you see yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to, just to give a really obvious example, you know, people in the States assume that I'm African-American, like having a similar African-American experience as American African-Americans, right? right. My, my mom was born in Guyana in South America and, and moved to Canada. And like, of course, there's racism in different ways in South America, but it's a whole, you know, in, in Guyana, but it's a whole different situation because... Uh, you know, white people are a minority, like the colonizers are, are a gross minority. And there are a lot of East Indian people and there are like Amerindian people. So there's whole different like just dynamics to the way that plays out. Right. So like, thing, especially if I'm in the States, things that people assume that I've lived or that I feel or that I think are like not part of my experience necessarily. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned a lot about what some of those things are when I was in Virginia. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to get back to the to, to get back to how this ties into the BIPOC voices, I think that, you know, so it's it's really hard for people to listen to each other when they, um, yeah, when they feel threatened. And I think that when we have music and specifically when we have vocal music, we have this amazing opportunity to tell stories and not encourage people to put up walls. Yes. You know, if I, if you are in a conversation with me and you say something that I find offensive, I'm going to be tempted to say something about it or to feel some sort of way about it. Um, you know, if something's happening on stage, I don't have to agree with it, but I'm unlikely to stand up and shout back at the stage. Right. Right. And so it's just I just think that it's this amazing. It's certainly not the only tool, but I think it is an amazing tool for us, all of us to start to listen to each other in different ways and listen sometimes more deeply to stories that we might not be used to. So when you see these opera companies and these orchestras talking about wanting to diversify their program and get other people on the stage, you know, to me, that's a really exciting opportunity for us as artists and as art organizations to really be leaders in this movement, um, in, in the shift in our society. Well, and I, I love the, the, the idea that, that what you're doing um, as far as, um, and help me understand, make sure I, I'm, I'm understanding your, your project well enough. Mm -hmm. And that is to, um, f almost from a composer level, bringing, you know, uh, people together that, that, that of a, of diverse broke, uh, backgrounds, um, and, and putting kind of a, a, a library, maybe explain it better, but explain to, yeah, to me exactly what, what are you trying to do with this project? Yeah, perfect. I haven't actually done that. And that would be a great thing to do, wouldn't it? So uh, first of all, uh, in case anyone's not familiar, BIPOC means Black, Indigenous and People of Color. Um, so BIPOC Voices is a is a project which is building a library of or an online library of opera and other works for voice and instruments written by BIPOC composers. So, you know, if you look at the tools that people have for programming stuff right now, you can, for example, find resources around this for like art song or maybe around string quartets. I don't know exactly what exists in every genre, but there's nothing for opera. So suppose an opera company says, oh yeah, it's true. We've only in our entire history ever pro uh, programmed music by white composers. Maybe we should do something about that. And they're like, yeah, we really want to do this. Everyone's on board. And then there's like no easy way for them to do this. So, you know, they were overtaxed and overworked already and they have limited resources and they now have to go out and try to find this work. And it's not impossible, but it is definitely giving them a hard job. Right. So my my point with this is to make this easy that, you know, you say, hey, we want music by more diverse composers. Well, we know how to find this now. We have a place we can go that we can 
discover maybe some new things or we can explore some things we knew a little bit about in, in more detail. And, you know, we can listen to some excerpts. We can um, get in touch with the composers. We can see what else they've done. And, you know, we really have a strong starting place to get some different representation on our stages from the composer level. See, and I, one of the reasons why I love working at the composer level for that sort of thing is I, 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 I do not have a problem with at all with, for example, you know, um, casting different people in different roles because you can get different nuance and, and, and things like that, you know. So mm-hmm. so however, it doesn't change the. Let me put it differently. We, we had Mark, Mark Ainley on recently. And, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things he just did on his Facebook page is he, is he put up a recording of Bartok playing Bartok, which was mm-hmm. fabulous, amazing, good stuff. And one of the, the thoughts I had as I listened to it was how every um, – I love hearing composers playing their own music because they have mm-hmm. their own sense of you know, that, that rhythmic fingerprint that, that nobody else has. And so you, and it's amplified by their music. And it seems to me like when you can, when you can infuse um, somebody's culture, their background, everything into a, especially an operatic voice, that fingerprint, that, that those, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Those, those, those things just, just expand and you can actually, maybe understand better through that art um then 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 casting you know uh you know just just by by casting diversion i don't know if that makes sense but i'm 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 trying to uh, yeah yeah it's i think i think the composer level is an important level that that needs to be um better better placed no i mean i think that you hit the nail on the head it's it's um you know, there's there's so many different ways that we can do things. And if everybody grows up in the same way, listening to the same music and going to the same schools, and they're all going to write, you know, kind of similar music, even though they're different people and there will be differences. But like, you know, the range of cultures that we have and the range of stories that we have, um, you know, is much greater than what sort of falls inside the historic definition of of opera um yeah i think a good thing and and i know people might be asking themselves this and and with the strength of this movement and and a lot of movements you know blm and whatever that are coalescing um just a a greater cultural awareness is very important Uh, and i i don't want to say that uh, a place like montreal only in a place like montreal can you get that but i think it's it helps when you have so many cultures around you. And I certainly felt that change you know, when I moved from Montreal to Arizona. It's just a very different culture. I mean, things are more spread out here. You don't have as much interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but just just being in contact with people, even if you do have the same, at least in my, my world, the piano world, the same um, composers and people and com- that you're working on, just pe- different people from different backgrounds will will bring something else to it. So if you take that to the composer level, yeah, you're opening up a lot more diversity. And and people might say, well, then then doesn't the quality um, maybe suffer? And I would just say, and maybe you have your own opinion on this, but I would say that well, it's it's only going to enhance it. You know, we we don't have to choose everything just because, but at least the resources out there. And we can choose the good things, and those can also influence what we already have and, and enhance that as well. So, yeah, I mean, um, you, I don't know if you can speak to that. Yeah, I mean, you you kind of touched on something that I feel really important. Like, I think a lot about the parallels between uh, Me Too and BLM, um, and obviously, you know, there are a lot of differences between those two ideas or those two movements, but I think there's some similarities too. But one of the big differences, I think, like. So when Me Too happened, you know, I did my best to try to talk to some of the women who were around me and try to understand, like, so, like, you know, at first it was just, like, is this something that affects you? And then, like, it was yes, and then it was yes, and it was like, oh, this is someone that affects everybody. Okay, so I didn't even know that, right? Um, and so I'm learning that. And so I, and I tried to have some conversations to understand better what was going on with these people. 
and, you know, what their experience was like. And, you know, and I learned some things that I had been doing with no ill intent, but that probably made people uncomfortable or just, you know, how to, how to understand a different person's perspective a little bit different. And so we all had the opportunity to do that because we all know women, right? Like they're, they're pretty evenly dispersed throughout the population, but you know, if you're talking about black people or Asian people or any other group of people, like, you know, you mentioned here, Elias, in, in Montreal, we have a quite diverse population, but then there are places that the population is not that diverse. So mm-hmm. how do you actually go about listening to these people when they're not in your community? Mm-hmm. You know, like, how do you, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible, but, you know, there's there's TV and there's interviews and there's all sorts of stuff. But it's not like you can just ask your friend and it's not like half the people, you know, have dealt with this. So, you know, I, th- I think to me that, you know, when we talk about like the value of this diversity and particularly in the arts, you know, I think that's one of those things that comes up that, you know, it's providing a tool. There's like lots of people who legitimately can just say, like, I don't have a lot of black or people or or people of color or, or anything who I know well enough to ask these sorts of questions to and have a really open and maybe personal and maybe uncomfortable conversation with. Well, um, and, and I think, I, I think that even through the art, I mean, that's the, one of the unique things about art and music um, and, and opera specifically um, is that you can put yourself in, you know, you put yourself in, we will identify as the main character. And so if the identity, if the, if, mm-hmm. if the main character is um, somebody who's diverse or is a woman or, or is indigenous or, you know, who we are going to naturally identify and, and see um, that story through those eyes. And I think those stories are so important because they tell universal and, and important truths that, that tell us about the human condition um, and mm-hmm. in a unique way that, that wouldn't be told in any other way or couldn't be told. Well, and I think they also help us like, you know, we're at a moment where even if we ignore, you know, all the anti-racism and stu- stuff that's happening right now in our lives, um, you know, and, and the, you know, the gender imbalances that we have in our society and like all that sort of cultural stuff, we still have a lot of stuff going on, a lot of problems that we're trying to solve, you know, whether right. you're talking about global warming or COVID or you know, people aren't talking about it so much, but it's going to be coming in not so long. The advent of, of your sort of mass advent of AI. Right. Um, and, um, you know, all this stuff is problems that we, like if any of these were easy problems to solve, we would have already solved them. You know, the more people that we can have weighing in with different perspectives, the more opportunities we have to hear really good ideas. Amen. And, you know, some people, there are cultures that approach problem solving or thinking in different ways. And, you know, well, and we know that like, you know, women and men approach many things, like just the way that, I mean, sort of as, as a gross characterization, right. But you know, women and men think differently about different things. And I just think that there's so much value when you're trying to solve complicated and potentially existential problems in getting as many smart voices in the room as possible. Yeah. Amen. We're, we're talking to uh, Rich Coburn. Um, he is um, the, are, are you the founder of this project, Rich? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The founder of um, more, more by by I'm sorry. I say the name of your website. <laughs> yeah. Thank so you. The, 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 <laughs> the project is called BIPOC voices and the website is more BIPOC voices.com more BIPOC voices.com. Fantastic. And there will be a link in the show notes. Please go check. How, how can people um, support this? What's the, how can we, other than getting it out there, if you, if you know any opera companies, you know, <laughs> for them the link, like what, what, what can people do to help support your project? Yeah. Well, so right now we're at the stage, it's a pretty uh, nascent project and we're at the stage where we are accepting submissions from composers. So if you know composers who are black, indigenous or people of color, and they have works for voice and instruments like opera or, or any other thing that, that that is sort of similar to that, um, then that's, uh, you know, we're looking for that music and we're trying to find those people and get them on board. It's going to be 
sometime in the summer when the website goes live and it's going to be searchable by the general public. Um, you know, right now we're just collecting and we're, and we're building stuff. So is the best way um, then to, to contact you through email? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you'd email uh, morebipocvoices at gmail.com, you can also find that on the website. Um, you know, on on social media, we're more BIPOC voices on like the platforms that we're on Twitter, I think, and Facebook and, and Instagram. Um, so yeah, like it's really nascent, but you know, at the same time, like I have to tell you, I've been really overwhelmed by the number of people who, when I told about the project, uh, were, got really excited by it and offered to help me in some way or another. And, you know, some of those monies people said like, um, you know, can, can I give you some money to do this? And I need money. So that was great. That was very much appreciated. And some of them said, you know, can we organizations or individuals said like, can we help you with our time? Can we do all this stuff? And, you know, a lot of the work, well, actually right now, all the work that I'm doing is volunteer work. Um, you know, and I, and I am hoping to, to, well, I'm going to have to, you know, find a, a, a more sustainable model for this. And that's one of the things I'm working on right now. But it's, you know, right now, this is like literally a project that grew up just from this idea of there was this grant uh, Music Academy of the West had for their alumni. And so I went there in, I think, 2014 and to like do to make an innovative project. And I saw this and I was basically unemployed because of COVID. And so I was like, oh, sounds interesting. So I like start doing something and it just the amount of support I've got has mean that actually the project has been growing more and more and more. So, you know, if people are interested in the project and, you know, there are many ways that, um, you know, I'm still looking for partners to do some specific things. And, uh, there are many ways, I mean, obviously donations are, are, are welcome because there's some expensive things that we have to do, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways that, that people who are interested can, either just get the word out or be useful or be in touch with me. And, you know, I'm appreciative of all of it. Can they make donations? I mean, I've been on your website and I know you're, you have four big partners already, which is wonderful. Um, and I know how tough you're essentially probably developing a, a non, maybe even a nonprofit route. And, and I know how, how difficult that can be to get funding. Is there a way people can just go to your website and make donations uh, that help you or help the project? Um, there isn't at this moment, but it's some, it's like one of the next things that I'm working on is putting together a, uh, I mean, actually, so just this week, um, all of the winners of that grant from Music Academy of the West just had, uh, that wrapped up yesterday, a week of um, workshops with leaders in arts organizations across the States, um, you know, wonderful people who are talking to us about everything from like, you know, decision-making to fundraising to, uh, you know, budgeting to, but like basically all the nuts and bolts of entrepreneurship. And I've done a bunch of entrepreneurial stuff before, but I learned a lot in this week. It was very helpful. And so, um, you know, what I'm doing starting tomorrow is just going through and starting to think about all the stuff I learned over this week, which sort of I drowned in good material and, and, and trying to go and sift through and figure out what, you know, what the next things are. But one of those things, you know, as I say, now that I have a bit more of a sense of the, of the demand for this, you know, I'm, I'm going to be putting together, as you said, Elias, I think, you know, whether I guess exploring, you know, whether it's going to be a nonprofit, which eventually that'll do, I have to look into, you know, some details of that and, and, and what everything is, but I guess I'm rambling here. What I'm trying to say is that I'm putting this together and it's like a very sort of take it as it comes. And like, you know, we're really just at the beginning of this adventure. So, well, and that, and I think that's, that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm super excited to, to promote it, what I, what we can, because I think it, it's so important that that we do get as many. I, I think you said it best. When we have big problems, we need as many smart voices to to help solve these problems. And I and personally, I think um, stories and art, um, uh, you know, help help us come up with the best solutions. Um, that's just been my experience, and and you know, we can we can infer. Um, that beauty, we uh, it just it, it makes the world a better place and allows us to think differently. And I'm and I'm excited to, mm -hmm. to be even just a small part of this. And I would encourage our you know anybody listening go 
um, you know, go and go check out what they're doing. And, and, you know, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the more, this is going to be a re- great resource, yeah, you know, this absolutely. Soon. So, yeah, it's just very important. come visit and say hi. And, uh, you know, even if you don't have anything, if you just want to say like, you know, I sent a message and say, we're looking at your website. I'm looking you know, forward to it coming out or, you know, join the email list or whatever. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, um, I'm going to, I'm at least, do you, do you have anything else that you'd like to ask? And, and then I would like to have Rich have the last word there, but, but what, I think it's awesome. All the things that you're talking about and just making things, making the wheels rotate in my mind and, and just giving so much fodder and thought to what's, what's, what's possible. And I think you bring up a lot of good points that if people really can listen just to this podcast and reflect a little bit, I think we'll be a, a better place. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming. It's, it's awesome to hear you and to reconnect. I mean, I haven't seen you in a, like been, three or four years. Yeah, it's so. been a while, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, can't Rich, thank it. you. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Tell me, give out the best place that people can contact you, can support you. How how do you want people to reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think the best thing is just go and visit the website morebipocvoices.com. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to the day um, in not so long when we're going to actually be able to start serving these people who we want to serve and, and allowing people to use these resources. You know, it's been really exciting um, as we've started to have some compositions come in just to see people and their enthusiasm and to see the scores and to start reading through them and, and looking at the stories. I mean, I just, it's, it's fantastic. And I, and I think it's only going to be more fun as we keep going along. And I hope that, um, I hope that people can join us, you know, people who are interested in this work of, you know, using music as a targeted tool, you know, for our, for social change to to improve people's lives um you know i i really believe in that and and i'm so thankful to the people who have helped me with that so far and i'm looking forward to meeting more of you wonderful wonderful thank you so so check out rich at more bipocvoices.com and uh thanks again we're gonna have to have you back on if you don't mind we'd love to have you back on maybe in the summer as as you start your big launch that'd be awesome yeah absolutely i would love to come on again ah we're looking forward to it well thanks again for being on the show and i want to thank our audience for listening and you know hope you hopefully you'll check out the resource down in the show notes my name is mike levitt and you've been listening to and if love remains 